Welcome to day 190 of the story that changes everything. Our readings for today are Isaiah chapters 22 through 24. Here's some thoughts to guide your reading for today. There's a story in the writings of the philosopher Nietzsche about a mad prophet who comes to town proclaiming the death of God. Now, in some of Nietzsche's writings, he proclaims the death of God as a very exciting thing. The idea of God is dead, so now we're free to do whatever we want to and we can create our own reality. But in this particular narrative, this mad prophet comes to town shouting, God is dead, God is dead, and we have killed him. Here, Nietzsche likely means that this is a lament because an enlightened and rational culture has eliminated the need for God, but in the process he realizes we've also inadvertently eliminated any sense of order and meaning. God may be dead and we are free to do whatever we want to, but if that's the case, we're free to do whatever we want to, and therefore there is no structure, there is no meaning, or in Nietzsche's words, we have unchained the earth from the sun. How despairing. But one of my favorite parts of this particular narrative is that no one in town listening to the prophet's words actually pays attention because the people are so amused by a tightrope walker who's come to town that they actually have no interest in the despairing cries of the prophet. The first half of chapter 22 of Isaiah, verses 1 through 14, read to me like the lament of Nietzsche's madmen. The people of Jerusalem were barely rescued from the hand of destruction from Isaiah's perspective. This text is likely rooted in the the Assyrian invasion at the end of the 8th century during the time of Hezekiah. In fact, verse 11 about the reservoir of water may actually refer to the construction of Hezekiah's tunnel. But even though they have survived by the skin of their teeth and by the hand of God, Rather than responding with repentance, reverence, or trust in God, the prophet senses that the people have first trusted their own ingenuity rather than God's strength, and then have responded to their deliverance not with repentance, but with wild celebrations. From the prophet's perspective, they are like the prisoner or debtor who is freed from their bondage or delivered from their debt only to go right back to the behavior that got them into trouble in the first place. The second half of the chapter, verses 15 through 25, is a unique section and a bit odd. The prophet seems to be using the story of two royal stewards, Shebna and Eliakim, both who are mentioned as part of Hezekiah's court in 2 Kings 18.18, but uses them as a kind of symbolic or parabolic example of the kind of concerns raised earlier in the chapter. Shebna was entrusted as a steward with authority, but used it for self-glorification. He built himself a big fancy tomb. Eliakim, on the other hand, is given authority and honor and uses it rightly, and thus, at least temporarily, it becomes a source of strength, building a virtuous and godly people. In the same way, then, Jerusalem's privileged status with God does not make it exempt from God's judgment, from these oracles against the nations. Jerusalem is included. Chapter 23 concludes the oracles against the nations that began all the way back in chapter 13. The oracles conclude with a word of judgment upon the economic system of trading and commerce of the day. Tyre and Sidon were the market capitals of this time in the ancient world. So if we were perhaps to put it in a contemporary context, we could maybe read verse 1 of the chapter this way, an oracle about Wall Street. The first 14 verses proclaim judgment upon the exploitative forms of the economy. 
everyone should weep because like the major market crash we had in 2008, when Tyre and Sidon collapses, everyone who lives and are dependent upon the wealth of those cities, their life will crash too. But verses 15 through 18, imagine God, after a complete generation of judgment of 70 years, that God might restore the economy of Tyre, but now their work will not be for themselves, but they will be working for God's purposes. Moving on to chapters 24 through 27, those chapters form what has sometimes been referred to as the little apocalypse of Isaiah. Our chapter for today, chapter 24, moves God's judgment from the nations to the entire created order. The vision here is cosmic. It takes up all of the heavens and the earth. God's judgment on the wicked and broken systems of the world takes up every person and every category of person. No one is exempt. Much of the language of this chapter reflects the flood narrative, actually, of Noah in Genesis. In the same way that God dissolved every element and aspect of creation through the flood, so God's judgment will again fall on every part of the world. But in the same way that Noah and his family remained as a remnant through which God recreated, so too Jerusalem will be a remnant. And it's imagined by God as a place and a people who, rather than being judged, pay honor to Yahweh. And while everything is collapsing, they sing glory to the righteous one. Again, the language in this section of judgment in Isaiah is echoed in the fall of Babylon in the larger apocalypse of Revelation, particularly chapters 18 and 19 there. In both places, the fundamental question is a question of identity. In Revelation, it asks essentially this question, when Babylon, the great global economic system and the great political and military system with all of its injustice, when it falls, those who find their identity there will weep and mourn and wail because everything they've trusted and built their life upon is no more. But then in chapter 19, there's another group of people that shout hallelujah and sing praise to the Lamb because their identity was rooted in the kingdom of God. Isaiah has spent several chapters trying to reveal the places we think of as secure as actually being insecure. That, in my opinion, is what prophetic literature does at its best. It helps us to see our lives and our values honestly, but to see them through the lens of faith. These texts want to ask us this question, where does your hope lie today? Where is your source of security? I believe that ultimately the goal of scripture, and in particular this section of Isaiah, is to form a people who can sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Where does your hope lie? Isaiah wants our hope to rest fully on God. Some of the greatest words of hope in all the scripture break into our next set of texts. Next up is Isaiah chapters 25 through 27, and we're adding Psalm 80. I'll talk to you tomorrow.